Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Nikki, how are you liking Daniel 7? I love it. Isn't that Actually, amazing? Yes, and I'm, I knew that I liked Daniel from other studies, but I'm really loving this study with you. Um, what has stood out to you in Daniel 7 that may be new or that you hadn't thought of before, that you're seeing differently? I'm just kind of curious to know how this is affecting you. You know, before, I think I just sort of floated right past Daniel 7 because of all the beasts, and I didn't understand it. Uh, what's different to me is the fact that it's knowable and its relationship to Daniel 2. I never yes. knew that before. I never saw that before. It helps so much to know that these are parallel truths. The vision of the image and the vision of the beasts. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What about you? I did know that there was a parallel between the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the beasts of Daniel 7. But I didn't ever really think about the fact that the beasts reveal what God sees of those Gentile nations, where he gave Nebuchadnezzar an image that would be suitable for a pagan king. He would mm -hmm. see it from a very human perspective. And I think one of the most overwhelming things for me has been just looking at that judgment scene that we saw last week mm. and realizing that that whole judgment seat where the Ancient of Days takes the throne and the Son of Man is presented is what's kind of like happening inside that stone that hits the image in Daniel 2. Mm -hmm. That stone is this judgment scene, and it's going to fill the earth as Christ takes the kingdom. And now we're looking at the angel interpreting the vision. And you know, Nikki, this isn't the only place an angel comes and interprets the visions to Daniel. I mean, he has interpretations all through this book. And for some reason, as an Adventist, these angelic interpretations never helped me at all. But I've also discovered that in this interpretation, um, as I'm reading it this week, there are passages in here that have been proof texts for more of Adventism. And it's like getting that out of the way clears up the whole thing. That's interesting. Yeah. So there's Adventist proof text even in this section we're dealing with oh, today. Yeah. He'll think to change times and oh, laws. Right. That means yeah, the Sabbath. That's right. The Sunday law. <laughs> it's it's funny because I look at this and I don't think Adventism anymore. It, yeah. We said we were going to take Daniel back. Yes. And, and we have. Thank, and Wes, thank we the are. Lord. He's thank showing the Lord. us. Yeah, and it's an accessible book. That's the thing that's so surprising. Even if we don't know exactly what everything means in terms of how it'll be fulfilled, mm -hmm. we can see the general picture, and the Lord's shown it to us. And isn't it cool that Daniel didn't even know what it meant? Right. Daniel was distressed to know. He wanted to know. So, we're okay. We're in good company. Yes. <laughs> you know, in some ways, the Lord has allowed us now, in this time in history, to know even more about what Daniel meant than mm -hmm. Daniel knew, mm -hmm. because Jesus has already come and has died and has ascended. And we have John and the Revelation. We have new Revelation that Daniel didn't have yet. So, That's so compatible. Exactly. It's so incredible. They go exactly together like pieces of a puzzle. So, Nikki, would you read for us the angel's interpretation to Daniel? And we're going to look this week at Daniel 7, 15 to 28. Okay. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. 
I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates." I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom... Ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself." It's interesting to see how this whole thing affected Daniel, isn't it? Yeah. What do you think he was feeling? Oh, I can't even imagine. Because he knew this was from God. Yeah. And this wasn't just a bad dream. <laughs> this this was real, and this is going to happen. And for him to see that the saints are going to be handed over to this fourth beast, that must have been heartbreaking to him, especially after walking through Babylon and seeing what happened to them in a land that took care of them. So interesting. Well, let's go back to 15 and just start walking through it. So this is after Daniel has told his vision of the judgment and the Son of Man being presented and being given the kingdom. It's interesting because he bookends this section with his feelings, right? Yeah. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind began alarming me. And then in 16, I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So talk to us a bit, Nikki, about who is this other one that he asked for an interpretation, and what was this being saying to him? Well, You know, commentators have some different ideas about it. A lot of them believe that one of those is an angelic messenger. Some have suggested it's one of the thousands upon thousands who are standing there. Either way, I think we can assume that it was a a spiritual being in his vision 
I think so too. Probably an angel. That's a that's a pattern in in the book of Revelation too. And one of the things we look for in hermeneutics is what are the patterns of scripture? Very important point. It was interesting that I I found three texts that referred to an angelic being or a heavenly being interpreting things. The first one I, I have down here is Zechariah 1, 9 and 10, where Zechariah says, what are these, my Lord? And then he says, the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And then he goes on to explain how an angel interpreted to him the vision he had had of a couple of myrtle trees. So that was interesting to me that Zechariah actually had an angel interpret. But then in Revelation, John has somebody else that interprets to him. In Revelation 5, and remember Revelation 5 was part of that throne room scene Mm -hmm. that parallels the description here in Daniel 7. He says, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began weeping loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And one of the elders said to me, one of the elders who was around the throne going, holy, 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 weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. I thought that was interesting. That's one really of the interesting. Yeah. And the same thing happens in Revelation 7. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So that is the scene in Revelation where John is seeing the great multitude standing by the sea of glass in heaven. And again, one of the elders, so I don't know, but I think we can take it to the bank. It was a heavenly messenger. Yeah. Because we don't even know who the elders were. Someone who had the answers. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So then he goes on, and this heavenly being says to him, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. So, Nikki, what stands out to you in 17 and 18? Well, this is a summary of everything we're about to unpack next. Right. And it's in line with Daniel 2. There are four kingdoms that are a part of kind of one unit, like the statue. Nikki, you had some interesting insights into liberal and conservative schools of thought related to these passages and to this whole this whole chapter, actually. Mm-hmm. Could you share some of that? Because I think it's really interesting for us from an Adventist background, because in one sense, we had a sort of conservative take on Daniel, but in another sense, our background has a very liberal perception of Scripture. We don't mm-hmm. view it as inerrant as Adventists. So, I'd like you to talk about this and the difference it makes. Sure. In Adventism, we kind of pick and choose where we're conservative and where we're liberal. There's not a consistent hermeneutic in Adventism. If there is, it's Ellen. Ellen. She is our consistent. The, the great controversy is sort of our hermeneutic. Yeah. So, beginning right away in, in verses 17 and 18, there was some commentary that came up on the Precept Austin website that really helped succinctly explain the difference here between the two schools of thought related to interpreting Daniel's visions. I'm going to be quoting from an author by the name of Gingrich. And he says that there's two schools of thought. They're the higher critics, Mm -hmm. and then there's the conservatives. And he says, the scholars of the school of the higher critics teach that the book of Daniel is a second century BC forgery, and that the so-called prophecy found in the book is really history, 
and was history at the time the book was written. They teach that the four empires spoken of in chapters two and seven have reference to the Babylonian Empire, the Median Empire, the Persian Empire, and the Grecian Empire. So they're pretty skeptical about the origins of the book of Daniel and who wrote it. These are the higher yeah. critics. Isn't it fascinating? Because that what they're really saying is God can't or won't be able to predict the future that accurately. Yeah, they really struggle with predictive prophecies. So how can you have a sovereign God if you're a true higher critic? Mm-hmm. Your, your own brain is more authoritative. And, and it's ironic to me because liberal Adventists will come to Scripture with a higher criticism kind of yeah. way of approaching it, and yet they had a prophet who predicted the future. Isn't that ironic? It really is. Yeah. So then the second school of thought would be the conservatives, and they teach that the book of Daniel is a genuine production of Daniel written in the 6th century BC, and that the prophecy found in the book was genuine prophecy at the time the book was written. They teach that the four empires spoken of in chapters 2 and 7 are the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and the Roman Empire. But even among the conservative school, there are subcategories of where people go with the book of Daniel, and it really depends on your hermeneutic. We've talked about this before. So true. So the first subschool would have both the amillennialists and the post-millennialists included. They teach that the destruction of the fourth Gentile world empire, the Roman empire spoken of in Daniel chapters two and seven, has been a gradual destruction accomplished by the church. So we have been destroying Rome. I suppose so. I th- I believe that they say that we're in the kingdom now. Okay. The second subschool would be the premillennialists, and they teach that the destruction of the fourth Gentile world empire spoken of in Daniel, chapters two and seven, is to be a sudden cataclysmic destruction accomplished by Christ at his second advent. Uh, they say that the Roman Empire is to be revived during the 70th week of Daniel and will be smitten and destroyed by Christ at his second coming. So we see that the prophecy of the times of the Gentiles is a controversial prophecy. Interesting. So amillennialism and postmillennialism say essentially that the kingdom of God is now, the church is destroying Rome. So the, the the work of that little stone in chapter two that hits the image on the feet is the work of the church destroying the, the Gentile empires. Yeah. And I've heard it said that that rock, as it grows on the earth, that that is um, from the post-millennial viewpoint, that is the church growing and dominating yes. over the world politically, socially, religiously. Mm-hmm. Now, interesting, that view is somewhat challenged by what we read in Daniel 7 with this judgment scene that we studied last week. Mm -hmm. If that rock corresponds to the judgment scene of Daniel 7, which it appears that it does, then something else is going on besides the church expanding on the earth and breaking down the image. To be sure, the church is the body of Christ, but the vision that Daniel had in Daniel 7 of the Son of Man being presented, the Ancient of Days being there, and the Son of Man being given a kingdom is a different view from the one the amillennialists and the postmillennialists have. Yeah, and people, as they listen to us, they'll hear us take more of a premillennial position, but that's because we're maintaining our 
historical grammatical hermeneutic that we've used in every other book that we have gone through on this podcast before. It's consistent. And I want to say there was this great quote by John Whitcomb in there that said, biblical revelation does follow consistent patterns, even in eschatology, so that the careful and reverent interpreter need not be totally frustrated, even by the use of symbolic language. And we know, based on our hermeneutic, that symbolic language that may be symbolic, yeah. but the interpretation is literal, and we can right. trust it. I love that. But I want to say, looking at verse 18, there is a big clue in this verse related to the kingdom and what it is that brings in the kingdom. Is it the church that brings in the kingdom or something else? And it says right here in 18, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now, there's going to be a a verse later in this chapter that's even more precise that we'll look at later. But it's interesting that the verb here is the saints will receive. Mm -hmm. That is a passive verb. The saints are not taking the kingdom. Someone is giving it to them. They are receiving it from an outside source. That's a passive verb. Mm -hmm. So that's a clue. So let's move on to what the angel or the divine being says in verses 19 and 20, where he asks the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which is so different from the others, dreadful, iron teeth, claws of bronze. It devours, crushes, tramples down the remainder with its feet. And he also asks the meaning of those 10 horns that were on its head and the little horn that comes up and takes out three and speaks great boasts. And it becomes larger in appearance than all of its associates. What is Daniel seeing here? What, what can we say about these two verses? Well, Daniel's pretty confused about what he's seeing here, <laughs> but it, it's interesting. We get a little bit of new detail in this verse. We right. find out that this beast has claws of bronze, but we don't really learn what that means. It's just true. Interesting yeah. that that comes up. Most commentators who interpret literally and futuristically, so that would be the conservative approach to scripture, they view this as the antichrist. And there's a lot of scripture in the New Testament that confirms that and flushes that out for us. And it's interesting because the word anti has two meanings. It can mean instead of or against. And really this guy does both. He does both. Yeah. He speaks blasphemy and he stands against against this Christ. You know, it was interesting. I, I it was such a a little tiny thing, but um, I know J. Vernon McGee said about this passage, the ten horns come out of this beast, which appears, you know, from a conservative reading to be Rome. And he said, they don't come out of a dead beast. It is living and terrible. Mm. The beast is alive. It's not like suddenly there's 10 horns and the beast is of no account. Whatever this beast is, it is alive. And these 10 horns are living and coming out of it. The little horn is, as you said, considered the Antichrist. I think it's very interesting that Paul describes the Antichrist or the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 10. And listen to what Paul says about the Antichrist. This is centuries later, after Christ, when he is talking back into the church about what will happen in the future. And this is how he describes what Daniel saw here in the beast. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And notice again, he calls him a man. 
The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember, Paul says, that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all the power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. It's an interesting new covenant view of this little horn, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And the nations and the people's responses. And those who refused, it doesn't say they just refused the truth. They refused to love the truth. They reject the notion of the truth of Jesus. And they're the ones that will be deceived. Well, and that makes so much sense because even the demons could proclaim the truth. And the Lord says there are people who will say, Lord, Lord, but he'll say, I never knew you. That's right. Just one thing that I thought was interesting is that at the beginning, when this horn comes, it's little. Yes. But by the end, its appearance is larger than its associates. So there's some kind of political campaign that uh-huh. takes place that takes him from almost nothing to dominating three other kingdoms. And apparently dominating the world. So then we look at 21 and 22, and we read a little bit more about this <laughs> fearful horn. I kept looking. That horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Talk about that, Nikki. There's so much good stuff here. First of all, this beast is only allowed to wage war against the saints until the Ancient of Days decides he's done. This is something that was allowed him. This isn't him overpowering God, and it isn't humans failing and letting him. No. This is God giving him this, this authority for a time. And I love the word until. I know. (laughs) Every time I see it in scripture, it's always exciting. Until the Ancient of Days comes. That's the text you just read. It is. At his coming, he will bring him to nothing. With the breath of his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, I think it's just worth pointing out, because this is a former Adventist podcast, that judgment was passed in favor of the saints. Right. Not in favor of vindicating God's character. Exactly. This is God's not on trial. No, right. God is not on trial in any sense, in any place in the universe. Again, I think it's also worth pointing out here that it's after the Ancient of Days comes that the saints take possession of the kingdom. Yes, that is a really important thing. And that's going to be repeated again in a few more verses. So I think that by the time we read this idea three times in the (laughs) explanation of the vision, Mm -hmm. we have to take it seriously. Yeah, The saints receive the kingdom. The saints take possession of the kingdom after the Antichrist is destroyed. And then in the next verse, we'll talk about that when we get to it. But the timing is significant because this is not describing the saints 
creating, building, burgeoning the kingdom, and then making it something they hand over to the Lord when He comes. Right. It's the other way around. So in verse 23, we read that the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. What's significant about that? Well, first of all, this is the first time in this vision that it's called a kingdom and not a king. I think that's really interesting. We should at least comment on it because generally a king and a kingdom represent the same identity, purpose, force. For example, it's been said that Louis XIV said, I am France. So there's a way in which, you know, when we think of, for example, Babylon, we think Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, in the vision of the beast that Daniel has, he sees a beast that's terrible with wings and it's like a lion. And then he sees it stand up on its feet like a man and he's given the mind of a man. So even in the vision, he sees a melding of the kingdom and the king. They both kind of go together with identity, purpose, and force on the earth. So I think that's what we can know from this. It's not like there may be other kings around, but the fact is the kingdom and the king represent the same goal. Yeah. And Nebuchadnezzar had that figured out when he saw he was the head of gold. Yes, he did. (laughs) You know, the other thing that's interesting about verse 23 is that this fourth kingdom is a literal kingdom on the earth. Mm -hmm. That rock in Daniel 2 that comes and destroys the fourth kingdom and then all the other kingdoms vanish with it. That rock is coming to where the fourth kingdom is. That's right. So that rock being the fifth kingdom is coming down to where the fourth kingdom is, destroying the fourth kingdom. And then where it lands, it grows yeah, that's and it so fills the whole earth. So I think that's another another logical conclusion that this fifth kingdom is going to be a literal kingdom on earth. That is a great point. I hadn't actually thought of it that way, Nikki. That's very interesting. And I think another thing that's really interesting is that it says this fourth king, this fourth kingdom fills the whole earth. And I just think that's really important to remember because when we look at geopolitics today, we have a huge sense of the Western world because, you know, we, you and I live in the Western world. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure everyone who hears the podcast lives in the Western world. So this fourth kingdom will rule over the whole earth. And to be sure, those horns represent kings who are somehow connected with this kingdom. But it will be over the whole earth. The power and the purpose of this beast will be over the whole earth, not just the Western world. And then in 24 and 25, we read, the ten horns are ten kings. And then we read more about that little horn. Another will arise after them, and he'll be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three of them. He will speak out against the Most High, wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. And if you have prickles on the back of your neck or a visceral reaction, don't worry, because the Adventist interpretation is not ours to worry about at this point. So what do you see in these two verses? Well, it was interesting. I 
I didn't realize that there was anything important about the fact that these 10 horns exist at the same time, but it turns out there's a lot at stake here. There are liberal theologians and even some conservative theologians who look at these 10 horns and they will say they come up at different times, one after the other, and they try to tack it on different points in history. I think one group says that um, there were 12 kings in Rome, uh, but two of them reigned for a real short time. So we can count that as 10 and they do mental <laughs> gymnastics. Sounds but, familiar a little. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not even an Adventism that I'm referring to. Right. But if you are going to have a literal translation, and you look at these words and these words mean what these words say, then we have 10 horns that exist at the same time because they're together. And then after them, so now we have a a word that gives time. time. After them, the little horn comes and he subdues three of them, which means they're still standing. They're still there. Mm -hmm. So this is a 10 king stage of Rome. And we haven't seen this yet, which gives further support that this is in the future and yet to come. Right. And interestingly, this does match the statue dream in Daniel 2. Those 10 toes exist at the same time. So these 10 horns also are there together. So there are people who say that these 10 kings have already fallen. This is an event that occurred in the past, but this is all referred to now in the book of Revelation, which was written long after the fall of the Grecian Empire. So this is clearly something that is yet to happen. Oh, absolutely. It's interesting because in Revelation 13, 5 to 8, this is what Daniel saw. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Incidentally, that's like the time, times, and half a time that Daniel saw, which actually refers to years. A time is a year, times is two, half a time is half a year, and 42 months is three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Doesn't that sound like the little horn here in Daniel? Blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So we see here a parallel account in Revelation, and and that is not yet. That has not yet happened. And it does seem to be describing the Antichrist. Now, I have to say, we have to look at that law and times thing. Do you remember Adventists talking about that, or did you learn that? Oh, that was the Pope changing the Sabbath. And we were taught that with great confidence. This is what Ellen White had said. And this is a proof text in Adventism for the fact that this little horn will be the Pope. And the way he's going to change times and laws is to do whatever is necessary to make a Sunday law so that Sunday becomes the legal Sabbath. Ellen White said this in The Great Controversy, the 1888 edition, page 439. The 40 and 2 months are the same as the time and times and the dividing of time, three years and a half or 1260 days of Daniel 7. The time during which the papal power was to oppress God's people. 
This period, as stated in preceding chapters, began with the establishment of the papacy A.D. 538 and terminated in 1798. At that time, when the papacy was abolished and the Pope made captive by the French army, the papal power received its deadly wound and the prediction was fulfilled, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. I had to read the Great Controversy in my high school year, in high school, for Bible class, of course. But you know what? Just like then, I read this and I find my eyes glazing over and I want to go, oh my goodness, this is like six times too many numbers for me. She does equate the 42 months with the three and a half years, but what she does with it bears no resemblance either to history or to this book. Mm-hmm. Daniel and Revelation, nothing suggests a Sunday law, nothing suggests that the papacy is going to rise and fall, and the Pope is, I mean, we don't know who the Antichrist is. We don't. But she is so confident of it. It's interesting that to this day, Nikki, when we get responses online to the videos on the FAF YouTube site or to even to our podcast or to articles that we publish in Proclamation, the most common thing we read is some reference to the Sunday law, Mm -hmm. some reference to the Pope. And if you look at Adventist videos on YouTube, there's just a plethora of warnings of the coming Sunday law. This is all from Ellen White And this text in Daniel is used as part of the support for that idea. This text. Well, I mean, you know, that's how they keep you in. Fear, terror. And a lot of the cults are apocalyptic in nature. Yeah. So she's going to take an obscure text and she's going to say, I have the correct interpretation because God himself told me. I mean, that's classic cult. (laughs) It is. And I don't know how we missed that. So... (laughs) So blindly missed that. I was looking at, um, again, on Precept Austin, and I love just this one sentence. The exact meaning of this phrase is not certain, as illustrated (laughs) by comments from several very conservative expositors. That's humility. Yes. You can approach scripture and say, you know, it's not clear. And that honors God. Yes. Because you're letting him have the last word. You're not trying to take it. You're not pulling words out of his mouth and speaking by his authority. Exactly. I think he had a great uh, idea that he put forward that I think fits well with the idea that there is going to be a future kingdom on earth. He said in Daniel 9, 27, we note that the Antichrist puts an end to sacrifices and grain offerings and commits the abomination of desolation, which Jesus declared would mark the beginning of the great tribulation, the last three and a half year period referred to as the time of Jacob's distress, not Adventisms. Right. This seminal event in Israel's history is in a sense associated with the Antichrist making alterations in law. When he put an end to the temple sacrifices, the Jews had reinstituted most likely using the guidelines of the laws of Leviticus. One of the commentators I read said that, for example, in the French Revolution, the leaders of the revolution also attempted to change laws. They actually tried to institute a 10-day week instead of a seven-day week. It didn't work. It couldn't last. But it's so fascinating that changing laws, attacking humanity, attacking human life and human nature, and changing the extant laws of time and seasons seems to be a repeated focus of attack, of evil trying to assume control over God's creation. And it is interesting to me that it says 
this little horn is going to be given some dominance over times and laws for a short time. It will be given into his hand for a time, but it won't last. Mm-mm. And he'll be destroyed by the breath of Jesus's mouth. <laughs> yeah, even his ability to wear down the saints of the highest one, that doesn't mean that they're not still in the hand of God. Exactly. And the Lord will never leave them. Nothing in all creation can separate anyone who trusts Him from His love, from His presence. So whatever happens, and whoever the saints actually are in this passage, whether they're saints in Israel, whether they're saints, Gentile saints in the tribulation, we don't have a complete identity. But we know that these are people who trust God, and He's going to be with them. Mm-hmm. And his promise in Revelation itself is that he will be with them and protect them from the fiery trial, one way or another. Now, it, one of the things that I thought was interesting as I was looking at commentators on this is that this is the first time that Daniel references this time of trouble. When he talks oh, about the saints being worn out, it's introduced for the first time here in, in Daniel. Yeah. And then it will continue. We'll see it emphasized increasingly as we move through the book of Daniel. And that's interesting because this is the last chapter written in Aramaic. Yeah. This is the last chapter really directly addressing the future of the Gentile nations. And the rest of the book is going to focus more on the future for Israel. So there's something significant there. Now it's going to punt us into Israel's future. Exactly. Well, let's look at 26 and 27. 26, it says the court, and this is again a reference to what we saw last week in 9 to 14. The court will sit for judgment and his, or the little horn's, dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. (laughs) Never come back. (laughs) You know, when I read this, preparing for this podcast, I loved the fact that I saw the Bible use the word annihilate. Yes. Because it has a word for it. (laughs) And it doesn't mean sleep or death or any of the words that people like to say support the idea that hell isn't eternal, but that people are annihilated. The Bible has a word for that. If, If that's what God means, that's what he'll say. Yes. So I looked closely at this because I was excited that this word is here. And I thought, okay, so is the beast annihilated? And it's his dominion. Interesting. It's his power and his ability to take over the earth. That's what's annihilated. So all of my anxieties growing up, well, how do I know that there won't be another snake and another garden? Mm-hmm. No, this dominion, it's gone forever. It's not coming back. Very interesting point. Because just like we saw in the judgment scene last week, where it said that the beast was going to be thrown into the fire, but those other beasts had their dominions taken away, although their life was preserved. We know already from previous places in this chapter that the word dominion has something to do with the authority, the spiritual power behind these empires. This is going to be destroyed. This is that until from verse 22. (laughs) (laughs) And then in 27, the sovereignty, the dominion, there's that word again, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be what, Nikki? Given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Who are those? They're his people. It's it's exactly (laughs) those who believe, all of us who believe. His kingdom will be an 
everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So this is a period of time where there will be multiple kingdoms that exist alongside his kingdom. Or under the authority of. Yeah, under the authority of. And if we look at, because we say grammar matters, right? Mm -hmm. The dominion and greatness of all the kingdoms, plural, Mm -hmm. under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom, singular, will be an everlasting kingdom. And all the dominions, plural, will serve and obey him. I can't help but think that this is a picture of that millennial kingdom where Christ will reign over the nations on the earth for a thousand years. And his saints reign with him, Mm -hmm. according to Revelation 20, and according to other places in the New Testament as well. You know, it's interesting that in Luke, the disciples were talking to Jesus, and he said, the 12 of you will be given 12 thrones to sit on in the kingdom to reign with me. (laughs) And I just find it fascinating that those who trust Jesus, it says in Romans 8, that we are joint heirs with him, whatever that means. We don't fully even know the magnitude of a joint heir with Christ. But it says here, these kingdoms will be given to the saints, and Jesus's kingdom will be eternal and everlasting, and all is under his ultimate power. This is very different from the way I read this as an Adventist. Oh, yeah. You know, I thought the thousand years was going to be us all up in heaven watching a movie explaining why some people were saved and some weren't. That's what I thought too. Well, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but that Satan being bound, and there's a suggestion here, you know, the beast is going to be destroyed and the dominion is going to be annihilated. That means that he's going to be on an empty earth. There's no hint of an empty earth here. No, no, the earth is filled. (laughs) The earth is filled with nations over whom the Lord will reign. It will be his kingdom, not those earthly kings. And the nations and the dominions will be given to the saints. So under the Lord Jesus, his people will administer the earth. And I do want to say, if the millennium is happening in a spiritual sense now, we certainly don't see the church walking around with dominion. And sovereignty over all of the nations. Look at the believers in China. Right. And other countries where they're beheaded and imprisoned and have to go underground. No, we're not seeing that yet. Well, this chapter ends with the bookend. Daniel began with his his feelings, his his uncertainty, his fear, his his kind of overwhelm at the thought of what he had just seen. And now he has had a heavenly being describe the meaning of this vision. (laughs) And we might say, well, not with a lot of detail, (laughs) but with enough so that we have a big picture, a generalized idea of the shape of the future. And how does Daniel end? He's just greatly alarmed. Even his face grew pale. I mean, he had physical reactions to this. But he kept the matter to himself, which is fascinating because I couldn't do that if I felt like he did. <laughs> but Maybe he, that's why he was a man. <laughs> but he didn't tell his contemporaries. We no. have it. By the grace of God, we have it in writing. But he didn't tell his contemporaries. No. There probably wouldn't have been enough context for him to explain it to them so they would even understand. They were still in exile in Babylon. And there was no sense of you know, Jesus hadn't come yet. The empire of Rome wasn't in power yet. All these things hadn't happened yet. There would have been no context for them. And, you know, the angel hadn't visited them. 
And there had to be some measure of confidence, even though one was afraid, there had to be some measure of confidence and trust that a heavenly being had come and had explained it, even if it left you devastated. And he knew it was true. Yeah, He knew that this wasn't a moment of, what if I'm making this up? Like, Ellen, what if this is from Satan? She panicked. Yes, she did. Daniel knew this was true. He had already had the vision of Daniel 2, where he saw the king's dream, and he was able to not only give the king his dream, but interpret it and tell him the events that led him to have the dream. He knew God spoke to him and gave him truth, and he stood confidently in that. And now comes this one. He was really affected by this. Yeah, he was. And now, here we sit, all these centuries and millennia later, on this side of the cross, knowing that we're saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus, the fact that He died for our sins according to Scripture, and He was buried, and He was raised from the dead according to Scripture on the third day, so that we who trust Him will be saved, reconciled to God, all our sins, past, present, and future forgiven, and given new life through the resurrection life of Jesus. We, on this side of the cross, know things that even Daniel couldn't have known, although he knew God, he trusted God. But we know what it means to be redeemed and made part of the body of Christ. We experience the indwelling Holy Spirit who never leaves us. And I want to say... If you are listening to this podcast, seeing what God has revealed about the future of the world, the confidence that we can have that He wins, He destroys His enemies, and He stands with His saints through whatever we go through, but if you haven't trusted Him, this is the time to do it, because you too can face this future with confidence and hope and joy, because Jesus reigns, and the kingdom is as good as in his hands in a manifested kingdom, even though at this point he is reigning from heaven and we are his body. If you haven't trusted him, do it. Join us next week as we begin Daniel chapter 8, and we look at Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.